Alright, here we go. Today is Sunday, June 25th, 2017, and this is episode 195 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hello, Jerry. How are you, sir? Happy Sunday to you. Likewise, and uh, four in a row. Well, if if you actually publish. Well, uh, yeah. That's questionable as of late. <laughs> Anyhow. Though... We apparently need to do some bank shows since you've got some crazy travel coming up. Yeah, yeah. I think we're gonna work on some uh, some remote remote That'd podcasting capabilities while I'm overseas. Excellent. Anyhow, um, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. And uh, also, just uh, we should put it up uh, up front, right? We're going to be you and I are both going to be at Tactical Edge next year. That's March. true. Which is in uh, Bogota, Colombia. That's right. Of all should places. So not exactly around the corner. No, but closer than where I'm going in a couple of weeks. So. <laughs> Anyhow, but nonetheless, something worth you know. Worth going to, we're told. It'll be our first time. It's only the second second year for the conference. That's right. Yep, but uh, it has some, some pretty rave reviews. So, anyhow, uh, let's get into some stories. Our first story today comes from uh, securityaffairs.co. And the title here is, that's a long title, DRA firm left 1.1 terabytes of data unsecured on Amazon S3, 198 million U.S. photo records exposed. And as you might expect, uh, Chris Vickery is right in the middle of this one. And, and I, I think we may have to start making some t-shirts that says Chris Vickery is my I, Amazon yeah. <laughs> IPS. Or DLP. Yeah, yeah yes. Krebs is my IPS, and uh, Chris Vickery is my DLP. That, yeah, that's a better joke. Yeah, yeah. We should go with that. That's all right. I just teed that one up for you, though. Just you yeah, know, yeah. Okay. I know you like to steal my jokes, and use them on on Twitter, and never I, credit me. So I do, I do. <laughs> don't think I don't notice that. You know, sometimes you got to step on people on the way up. Um, anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, the, the story here is that uh, Chris Vickery, who who is uh, want to find stuff, uh, you know, open databases and, and, and dumps of data on Amazon, uh, apparently found this pretty large cache of voter data from uh, 2008 and 2012, and then some limited data from the election in 2016. Apparently, this was data used by the Republican uh, the Republican National Committee a committee convention. I don't know what the C stands for anymore. I'm getting old. Uh, <laughs> it's the way it, it's the elephant party. That's all I remember anymore. Um, anyway, uh, they, they apparently ha- hired this company DRA to do some big data analytics to help figure out how much support they had for different, uh, different policy initiatives and whatnot. 
And as per usual, you know, security wasn't part of uh, of the equation here. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that, you know, we're, we're not seeing, by the way, and I, this is just an observation, and, and I don't know if this is really the case or if it's just what makes news, right? But we, we, we don't see small breaches. We don't see Chris Vickery reporting on, you know, like thousands of records. They all seem to be millions and billions. Well, is that self-selective, though? Maybe. Well, I, I wonder if it is. I mean, or, yeah, or I wonder if it's... Yeah. does get news. Well, it depends on what it is, right? If, if it were a couple thousand records, of, you know, HIPAA-regulated PHI records, I, I would imagine it would. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and, you know, certainly uh, with the GDPR coming on... I'm just saying, it's like if it doesn't have a logo and a catchy name and a theme song and a mascot... It's true. It's true. We don't yep. we don't talk about vulnerabilities anymore unless they have those things. So, <laughs> it, it has open to. databases of data. I don't get out of bed for less than fifty thousand leaked records. Yeah. Well, I get where I was. I guess where I was going was, it. it I I wonder if there is, uh, some affinity of these big data companies, you know, who are really only going to be handling, you know, the millions and millions of records, you know, you, you, those kinds of companies presumably wouldn't be processing, you know, the thousands of records. And, mm-hmm. and so to me, it seems like, you know, if you're, if you're an organization that is going to be hiring some kind of data analytics company, this, this one, you, you're probably not going to do that unless you have, again, millions of records. But, you know, I, I think you really need to take this as a lesson that you, you've got to figure out, um, you know, what are, what are their security practices? Um, well, and I think the tough part here is it's so easy for people to spin up yes. these sorts of cloud-enabled solutions that, uh, let's say you go and you work with a company and you say, okay, I want to audit your your data protection practices. And they fill out all your forms properly and they, they answer all the questions the way you want them to. And it seems fine. How do you really know? Uh, it, it's, good. it's a good point. And and then let's say that that third party does intend to do it all right. And then somebody in their analytics organization gets a, harebrained idea and spin something up to play with on the side, doesn't ever talk to IT security about it, forgets it's out there, or just doesn't secure it well because they're not experts on securing their their Amazon AWS cloud. Yeah, I, I guess the thing that, that, that strikes me about this is you know, this seems like core to the business of, a, of this kind of company, right? It's not like this isn't likely to be some you know, wild and wooly developer doing stuff like this seems more like you know, th- this is the business that company provides or th- that's the business they're in. And so they, sure. they probably use Amazon to do their data analysis. So I'm going to guess there's something wrong in their workflow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the, huh. the other interesting thing is we've seen a whole bunch of these voter voter records in the U S being disclosed in similar manner to this, it surprised me, and I don't know if this is actually true, but in the 
in the article, they, they say that the records include first and last name, home and mailing address, date of birth, phone number, and party affiliation, and ethnicity and voter registration. It, it I mean, some of that stuff seems kind of sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. You know, in, enough to enable uh, um, you know, at, at least some amount of, of identity theft. Yeah, you would think. You would think. Uh, I don't know. It's. Uh, I think when people really start digging into how much of their information is publicly accessible online, it does get a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Anyway, so uh, yeah, if you're if you're into the whole big data analytics thing, secure your your data, and if you hire someone, make sure they do. So. <laughs> So the story here comes from Wired.com, and the title is Crash Override Malware Took Down Ukraine's Power Grid Last December. Now, wait a second. I didn't think malware could actually take out Power Grid. I thought it was always squirrels. Well, I I suspect by volume, it usually is squirrels. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Anyhow, so there were were two notable uh, incidents with the Power Grid in the Ukraine. One happened in 2015, and the other happened in 2016. There are some videos going around of the attack that happened in 2015, which, as they they describe in the article, apparently was pretty manual. They, the the attackers who are, you know, of course, believed to be Russian, given the the politics of the region, uh, installed remote access trojans, or at least what appear to be remote access trojans, on this power company's PCs. And there's some video uh, floating around online where you can see the, you know, the attackers controlling the, com- you know, the computer and, and trying to shut off uh, switches, you know, so power switches. Now, apparently what, what happened in 2016, so just six or eight months ago in December, a uh, similar type of attack, but this time completely automated uh, through malware. So this... Uh, this is a, a bit of investigation work done by ESET and Dragos. And, uh, you know, Dragos is in particular run by some uh, pretty smart, smart fellers. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm inclined to uh, put some uh, some weight behind what, what they're saying here. Yeah, it's interesting. We We have speculated for a long time this is possible, but it's never really born few until now where we are actually seeing uh, some real attacks with real remote access taken down power grids. Yeah, uh, definitely. And so they, they talk about the, in, in this story, they talk about how uh, th- this piece of malware apparently is written in a way to be modular. And they, they said that it had the capability of, of uh, kind of natively talking on the, the, you know, the power grids, specific control protocols and so they're they're thinking that this you know the malware was intentionally written so that different protocol modules could be swapped in and out so that it could be used to attack different types of of power grids in different locations somewhat similar to metasploit allowing you to pick your yes your, your attack vector your payload your you know all that kind of jazz yeah absolutely yeah, very modular, which makes sense. You know, that's the world we're living in in terms of development of applications. Why not ap- apply it to your malware? Yeah, but I, you know, I think this is um, 
possibly the, the the start of something pretty ugly. I mean, right now it's it's a power grid, right? But mm-hmm. why not your data center's uh, air conditioning system or or PDUs or or UPS or you know there, there's you know th- th- there's a lot of control systems that are network connected. Yep. And you know not all of them are national power grids, and so you know I I suspect. As time goes on, you know this is, is this type of thing becomes commoditized. Certainly, we're really early days right now, and this is still apparently pretty. It, it, though we joke about it, right? This is still pretty nation level, nation state level stuff. It appears, uh, but it, it's probably not going to be that way for long. Yeah, agreed. Uh, in general, it seems somewhat. What's the word I want to be here? Irresponsible to have the systems that can control the power grid be reachable via the internet. To begin with, but. yeah, but you know, at the same time, it's especially with power grids, it's a, you know, it, it is a low margin business, right? right. You know, and, Ab- absolutely. Yep. So, so you're 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 probably very incentivized to to look for those kinds of cost savings. You know, it also really depends on the design of your power grid. I'm certainly no expert at, at power grids and control systems, but my understanding. A loose understanding is the U.S. power grid is very decentralized, and you've got all these different um, control points around the grid from all these different utility providers, and that this isn't something that you could easily affect the U.S. power grid the way you could a small country like Ukraine. Yeah, I but think, who knows? I, I, I think there are, you know, clearly we saw some bad stuff like with the, the Northeast the Northeast power outage, you know, I, I but I, I do think that was an example of, you know, how, how the, the grid here in the U S is segmented. Right. So, mm-hmm. but, but I do suspect that if you had a more coordinated attack and as they point out here, you know, that in 2000, they speculate that in the 2015 attack, they had 15 or 20 people, you know, executing that one attack, you know, and, and, you know, now that that, they've automated all that. You don't need that many people. So if you still had 20 people, you could be conceivably attacking 20 different uh, or, you know, sites. Or you could lay off 19 of them. <laughs> I like the way you think, yes. yes. Right, right. And, and uh, right. you know, save some money in your operation. That, that's, true, that's true bad guy innovation right there. <laughs> Return money to shareholders. <laughs> Driving shareholder value. <laughs> In your <laughs> the uh, the the organized crime boss sh- shareholders are, uh, really appreciate you know, that you want you want to maximize the value of your offensive cyber ops right right yep so uh, at the end of the day what really came of this though so they they proved they could down Ukraine's power power grid uh, Ukraine clearly recovered of course there's a lot of other stuff going on with Russia and the annexation of Crimea and that sort of thing but uh, it's interesting is this. Is this a probe? Is this a test? Is this the proof of concept, a shot across the bow, or was there some other purpose for this? Well, they they, they kind of theorize here that it was a proof of concept hmm. to show that it, it it could be done, and and you know I suspect that sort of thing would be useful in the context of you know let's say you wanted to do an invasion, right? That that's a handy. A handy yeah, thing, certainly. right? Now, on the other hand, you know, once once you you know they've rung the bell, right? And now, 
now Ukraine and everybody else is, you know, is understanding of the attack. So I, I would think that whoever did this would recognize that is an outcome. So, I mean, I assume they knew they would dilute their ability to do this again. Right. So I don't know what that means. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, it, I think this is a watch this space. Um, there was, by the way, I don't know if you saw it. And, and at this point it's completely uh tinfoil hat speculation, but you know, the, uh, the, the container ship that crashed with the, um, the U S warship was mm-hmm. the, one of the, the um, conspiracy theories is that North Korea hacked the container, the, the uh, guidance system of the container ship. So, yeah. Wow. I know. I know. So, hey. I, I, like I said, tinfoil tin tin hat, but. Awfully interesting. Not, I mean, you know, five years ago, who would have thought we could take down a power grid with malware? So. My, my only thought on that is, is what maneuvering was, was the U.S. ship doing at the time to avoid the collision? It was 2.30 in the morning, uh, right. you know, that sort of thing. But I, I'm assuming they had the radar up and they were aware that the, the container ship was on a collision course. I don't know. I, it's a whole different topic, but. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, bad, bad story all the way around there. Yeah. Sad, sad story. Uh, anyway, moving on to our next story, which comes from Threat Post. And the title is... Fin10 extorting Canadian mine, mining companies and casinos because mining companies and casinos are apparently in a adjacent industry for the bad guys. Well, first of all, we need to ask this question. Is it truly extorting? I mean, Canadians are notoriously polite and helpful people. Are we sure Fin10 just say, hey, can I have some money? And the Canadians gave it over, being who they are. Ooh, that's a good point. Or maybe, maybe that the extortionists weren't in, in they're not Canadians. So, I don't know. Anyway. It's very complicated. But uh, apparently the, the, this was an operation conducted between, between 2013 and 2016 in predominantly Canadian companies, although apparently there were some in the U.S. as well. They were originally thought to be unrelated attacks, but, uh, you know, FireEye doing what FireEye does, they uh, they found a way to link them all together and called them Fin10, and they created a nice report that you can register and read. And so in the, you know, th- these attacks, basically that what, what this, you know, this attack group was doing was using open, basically open source attack tools like Metasploit. And I assume you know, the social engineering toolkit to send, uh, you send phishing emails and uh, malicious uh, file attachments to their victims, they would obtain access to some data, they would download the data, and then they would uh, delete, uh, presumably delete the data, and then contact the, you know, the victim and, and try to extort Money and apparently between the the amount they tried to extort was between one hundred twenty four thousand and six hundred and twenty thousand dollars per incident, payable in Bitcoin. Bitcoin only, even. Bitcoin only. I mean, that, we we now understand. We're starting to get a really good picture of why Bitcoin is so expensive. Right. It's true. It's true. You know, at some point though, 
you would think an alternative cryptocurrency might catch on with the bad guys. Yeah, you would think. You know, it might get cost prohibitive, right? To to keep uh, doing doing business in Bitcoin, even though you know fractions of Bitcoin. You know, it's just it's just a lot of attention on Bitcoin right now. Maybe they want to shift to something a little more yeah, like Dogecoin, Doggy Coin. Yep. Sure, sure. You know, yep. something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see what other. Uh, you know, they, they they I guess they point out that in these types of attacks, it's it's pretty important that you move quickly to understand uh, you know, if the attack is real, which kind of makes sense. But you know, they point out that it's it's particularly important here because uh, um, I, I guess if you if you start to try to call their bluff, they are in your system and uh, apparently have been known to create some further further chaos. So you know, you it I think it helps to have a. a, a a reasonably good incident response plan <laughs> in, in and this, this kind of situation. And if, uh, you know, another point of interest, typically it seemed that the initial phishing email was using uh, macro-enabled word files. Yes. So, yep. which seems to be resurging in popularity as of late in the last six months. People are digging on the macro-enabled uh, word files again. Yeah, well, it's, uh, What's old is new again. It's true. It's true. Definitely. So, um, yeah, well, keep your eye out for that. I, I assume there'll be copycats. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, speaking of this, th- this next story is actually uh, a, a really interesting parallel, and it was something we talked about at the time, but this is a, a really detailed look uh, under under the covers of what happened with the, uh, you know, the, the stolen Orange is the New Black TV series. Yeah. Very long, in-depth, but interesting article, that's for sure. Yeah, so it, it comes from Variety.com, which is certainly not a normal uh, normal source for us, but no. uh, it is, uh, It's like you said, it's very long, and th- they apparently spent quite some time with the owners of the studio who had their data stolen. So that the name of the studio is Larson Studios. It's run by a husband and wife team. They apparently perform some kind of sound type editing for a whole bunch of different movies and TV series for a bunch of different networks. And uh, sometime in back in December, they received uh, some text messages and emails uh, from uh, a group calling themselves the Dark Overlord, telling them that that, that uh, they were gonna the Dark Overlord was gonna change their lives. <laughs> and and I guess the, at first they ignored it, and uh, and later they realized that it was the the real deal. They, uh, you know, they they then learned that this group had stolen uh, you know, a bunch of data, and I don't think they actually knew how much data at for for quite some time, and and that kind of develops as the story goes on. Uh, but the. Uh, the Dark Overlord, over the course of a, I guess about a month, convinced this, uh, you know, this studio that they had, uh, you know, they had copies of uh, some some movies, and they requested a fifty thousand uh, dollar ransom for the data to not, or you know, these TV shows to not be dumped on the internet, which they ended up paying, right? They, and it was it was kind of an interesting story in itself because they apparently 
uh, had to go buy some Bitcoin, so they had to wire transfer money to Coinbase. And in the process of doing that, uh, the their bank told them to go call talk to the FBI a second time because they'd already talked to the FBI once. And you know the FBI advised them not to do it, but they paid it anyway. Yeah, and, and from the story, they sort of, for lack of a better term, dog on the FBI for not being very helpful, sympathetic, but unhelpful. Yes, right. Yeah, particularly over the holidays. They, they said that they were quite unhelpful over the holidays. Which, I mean, hey, you know, FBI needs a break too. So, um, And then they, the other thing in this article, they really dog on this studio using Windows 7. And they, they keep referring to it as an out-of-date operating system. And, and they, uh, they say that in, in the forensics... Now, keep in mind, this is from Variety.com, so you can only expect a certain amount of technical details but they said that in the forensic analysis they saw evidence that this bad actor had been scanning for uh, you know for vulnerable systems and they just happened to find one it wasn't that they were being targeted it was that they found this opportunistic vulnerable windows 7 system on uh, i guess straight out on the internet uh, well, uh, that is a reasonable supposition. If a lot of these guys do troll, for lack of a better term, looking for opportunity, and then they get in and they figure out what they've got, and they can usually turn it into something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I now, mean, it, why it, you'd have a a Win Seven box open to the internet? That's an interesting question. Well, uh, agreed. And I guess the thing that the characterization of it being out of date. Now, I guess we don't know if it was out of date in terms of not being fully patched or if they're considering Windows 7 to be out of date because Windows 8 and Windows 10 are out. Uh, that part's not clear to me. Uh, so anyway, it, it appears that they, they broke in from the internet through this Windows 7 box. They were able to download you know, a whole bunch of shows. They paid this ransom you know, despite the, the, prost- the protesting of the FBI their bank, and apparently Coinbase too, also told them this was a bad idea and made them pay it in like small batches. Right. Uh, but so eventually they did pay it and the dark overlord confirmed that they received payment and, you know, all was good until a couple of weeks later they got contacted by the FBI again because... And this is now the part where we all kind of picked the story up. The, the, the Dark Overlord had contacted Netflix and a couple of other studios and uh, was trying to ransom, you know, trying to extort money out of them. Right. So they went to Netflix. So at this point, the victim had not told any yes. of the customers. See, that's the best part. Right. They, they, they had, because the Dark Overlord had told them, hey, you keep this quiet, we'll keep this quiet, you won't have any reputational damage, and this will all just go away. Right. And in fact, something interesting from the story that I read was that apparently the Dark Overlord had tipped various press folks to come ask this victim company if this was going on. Right. To see what Larson would do. Right, and they didn't do anything, and apparently that even got them kudos back from their attackers for not talking about it. Right, but yet even though they paid, even though they kept their word of being quiet about it, the bad guys weren't done. <laughs> they were not done. So they, as as we all now know, they went to Netflix, 
and uh, tried to extort some money out of Netflix. Netflix didn't co- comment for the story here, but we know we kind of know what happened, right? Netflix refused to pay the ransom. They released a you know one of the episodes, and then uh, you know to show that they were serious, and then they released nine more uh, as a you know as a punitive measure. And then what I found really interesting, kind of like uh, you know like their I guess their business people, they followed back up with the Larsons and told them why. <laughs> they said you know. We you know we had an agreement right that if if you uh-huh. paid the fifty thousand bucks, but part of the agreement was you wouldn't go talk to the FBI and so you mm-hmm. because you violated that 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 made it okay. Now it's not clear to me if you know it, it the, the sequencing of of events is not really clear to me when they went to the FBI or any anyhow. So I I I, I kind of wonder if that was just a you know, an excuse, right? But I found the whole point, or the, I found the whole concept of them feeling obligated to go back and tell their victim why they went and, you know, in turn victimized somebody else. You know, it, it, well, that was interesting. You have to, you have to train your targets. Right? Yeah. You, you need to, you yeah. need to understand why they're being, you know, so so they'll play ball next time. Well, that's fair. Uh, but the the one of the the big lessons out of this is. You know, they they kept it secret from from Netflix, and so they talk about some of the reputational damage. And it sounds like, by the way, some of their customers, it, you know, cut relationships with them, and then others were were pretty supportive. But you know, I I I I think that they would have done themselves a lot of favors if they would have been more upfront with their with their customers about what happened. Possibly, yeah. And this is the this is a rough area. We don't we don't have a good playbook on this sort of problem yet. And they were trying to get out of a bad situation much. It's the same sort of thought process that goes into, should I pay a ransom to get my data back? Uh, And they were trying to play ball, but I I agree with you in this case, I think they would have been better off Telling the the various studios that worked with, hey, we had a breach, and and your your data, your intellectual property is at risk. What's kind of interesting, as an aside, is is I don't know that threatening to release Orange is the New Black really is that much of a concern to Netflix. Obviously, it, it wasn't. Right. I mean, if you look at the model that Netflix has, they've got their subscriber base. It's it's. This was only a couple of weeks before this particular show was going to all the episodes were going to drop on Netflix anyway. And I'm struggling to, to make my point here, but I don't know that Netflix saw this as much as it was going to hit their numbers. It's not like a, a movie that was going to drop that could be heavily pirated and watched at home. People either already have Netflix at this time to watch this TV show or they were already planning to pirate it anyway. I don't know that it changed the equation much. I, I think the only, I think the the big thing that came out of this, as I recall, was that it was it was released before it would have been available on Netflix. Yes, but not not by much. But not yeah, not by much. I mean, I think Netflix yeah. normally kinds of bleeds them bleeds them out one you know a week at a time, just like a traditional TV station. No, You're, no, Netflix usually drops them all once. Oh, they do. Oh, I, yep. I didn't think they did. Okay. Mm. Well, anyway. Yeah, no, I. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll confirm here. I, I guess I don't 
watch a lot of Netflix. <laughs> so, Duh. Anyway. Duh. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, they released all of it at once. Okay. I stand corrected. It's uh, the wrong once before. As I recall. Yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'm pretty sure. I'm 99% positive of that. Uh, but all that being said, when this all broke, I don't think it changed much for for the average customer and average person using Netflix or even Netflix's uh, viewing numbers in this case. Now, that doesn't change the, the reputational damage to Larsa. It doesn't change the cost. Uh, and something else, you know, they don't work just with Netflix. There could have been all sorts of other things that dropped that could have had a huge financial impact on a, on a company. Yeah, you know, one thing that's not clear to me, apparently they, this bad actor stole a bunch of other stuff. And right. I don't know. Improved that they had it somehow. Yeah, and I don't know. They don't what, tell us what, but they what proved, happened, yeah. Right, and they seem not to have a problem dumping Orange is the New Black, so I don't, it, it makes me wonder, did the other <laughs> networks pay? Like, did they? That's possible. Did they play ball? Yeah. Because the way the story sort of hints is that the, the bad guys went and talked to a bunch of different studios, not just Netflix. Right. And, right. you know, Netflix gave them the middle finger. So, you know, once again, uh, vendor management, right? It's, this is... But I, I go back to how are you going to manage a vendor accurately enough to stop this problem? What is your vendor management typically like? Fill out a form once a year? Yeah, but I, I I think that's this is evidence that that's not adequate, though. Right? I agree, but unless you're going to embed an employee in the middle of their IT operations, how how are you going to know I, their day to day decision making and how they you know do things, whether it's wise or unwise or. But so so I mean, just, just to play devil's advocate here, what about mm-hmm. what about a service like BitSight? Uh, I don't have a lot of respect for for BitSight. First well, off, and I think okay. uh, I, I mean, think they have a, in concept, not not, not BitSight itself, okay. right? But uh, in right, concept. But what he but the concept of BitSight I think is very flawed because it, it it feels like a lot of fud marketing. It's it's taking an external view with a, out of context, without full knowledge and understanding of what's going on, and trying to derive uh, some sort of security value. From it, and and the reason the reason I'm dogging on this is that I get a lot of spam from companies like Bitsight saying, "Oh, we just analyzed your email infrastructure, and it's you've got a huge gap, and it's scary. And if you pay me, I'll tell you about it." <laughs> right? Oh, no, you're right. You're right. So it's an awfully nice network there you got there. Be shame if something right. happened, right? Exactly, and and so I, I get the concept, right? I I understand the value. I'm sure if there's anybody listening to the show who's, who's a worked for BitSight or a BitSight customer, they're telling me all the things that I don't know about the company of why I don't know what I'm talking about here. But what I what it goes into is security is an incredibly fluid thing, and it comes down to everyday decision-making. Yeah. You know, you miss one patch, and it changes the entire equation. You forget to change the default password on something that's interfacing and changes the entire equation. How how is a third party going to know that on on a on a day by day reputational basis that they can make cognizant decisions of how and where to entrust their data with a third party? I I don't know. I don't have the answer. Yeah, I but guess I, I, I was I was thinking more, you know, more specifically with this 
with this case, would you know, would something like BitSight have highlighted that they had this vulnerable PC connected straight to the internet? And 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 so if you know if you're a, if if you are an organization that deals in intellectual property, and I'm just you know I'm just kind of playing the other side here. Mm-hmm. If, if you're if you're an organization that deals in intellectual property, and part of your workflow is you transfer that intellectual property to a third party company, it it seems to me like you would want to have some deeper level of. Um, you know, trust or, or insight or but trust isn't the right word, right? But insight into the, you know, the, the way in which they're going to protect your data or not protect it, you know, b- based on their kind of their hygiene. And, I, I get it. But how are you going to do it? Uh, you know, are, are you going to have your own InfoSec people who are already incredibly busy, scan their infrastructure, do their own pen tests? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, trust some third party to to uh, attest for their level of security clearly they just need an ssa 16 that, that, that solved the whole thing right there i'm not saying that what you're what you're asking for isn't valid it makes perfect sense i just don't know how to do it yet in a way that isn't security theater and and i'm ripping on the we'll fill out my vendor management form once a year well i mean clearly that's just a bunch of horse crap uh, i mean right. it, doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything except employee vendor management people and on, on both is, sides right but that is the standard of care right now in this equation yeah but but i i you know i wonder if if there is a i i this is something i struggle with a lot right you know is, is it yeah. something that you need to codify in in an expectation when you sign your contract you know here here is our expectation and they say yes and they don't do it and they get breached yeah yeah right and then there's i mean there's got to be some relief then right i mean there's some some contractual relief well sure but then okay now you're into a lawsuit situation and yeah no good. I mean, there's but, no good, no good way out. I guess. Well, I mean, this these are the day by day decisions that companies make to yeah. to get business. You know, if their business is on the line, uh, they might hedge a little, or they might, you know. Mm-hmm. Things happen. Yeah, that's there's true. always a reason. Yes, you your 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 contract said we had to patch all CVSS scores above seven within 30 days, but that would have caused downtime on the server. You're not going to ha- re-debate that every time something comes up. Right. Because it ha- yeah, it happens a lot. You're right. I don't know. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to crap on the idea of, of, of managing your vendors well. I just, I don't think we're doing it right. I don't think we have the capability of doing it right right now. Hmm. That's to the best of my knowledge. So, so I wonder what, maybe. And at some point, you just have to trust, you just have to trust your vendors. Yeah. You just have to take that risk. But see, I think this is why I think this is why BitSight and others like them are are seeing success. I mean, whatever you think about them, I think this is a this is a tough problem, and there's not a lot of innovation. It, no, I get that. I get that. I just I I I have a bad mouth from the sales techniques of companies like that. Yeah, well, that's fair. I can't can't argue with that. <laughs> 
All right. Um, so moving on to our next story, which comes from Ars Technica, and the title is 32 terabytes of Windows 10 beta builds, comma, driver source, code leaked. Now, this has been a hotly contested story as to whether or not this is real or not. Oh, my goodness. Has it ever? This has been... So let's let's just say that right up front, because a lot of you might be screaming at your podcast player choice that this is a fake news story. This is some drama. So, so I, I guess out of the gate... Microsoft has, in fact, confirmed that they lost some source code. Now, the thing that is up for debate is what was lost. Yeah, you know, I lose source code just walking into the office in the morning for the parking lot. So let's be let's be honest here. That stuff's slippery. <laughs> it just falls out of pockets all the time. Sure, sure. So, uh, so yeah, there was, a, uh, I guess, a couple days ago on, on the website Beta Archive, there was a... Uh, a, a link posted to a hu- apparently a huge dump of uh, what was claimed to be source code, but upon and at the time, by the way, it was it, you know this was claimed to be uh, you know pre-release builds and the entire source code for Windows 10 and on and on and on and on and on. And and at the time, I remember thinking, well, boy, it's really coincidental that there like two weeks before there was the big story about. Microsoft moving, you know, creating the the biggest GitHub source tree ever when they moved the Windows code base into GitHub. And so I, of course, made the connection. But apparently that's not what happened. So I guess what what this particular story here is is indicating, and this is an updated uh, updated story based on what we now understand, it, it did have some private Windows 10 builds that included private debug symbols. So these are things that are not generally released to the public. There's a different set of debug symbols that are included in uh, in builds that are released to the public. Including the Insider Beta Program? Uh, I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then, uh, and then also there were, there was some, the source code for a couple of different drivers. So they're, uh, their USB drivers, their Wi-Fi drivers, and their plug-and-play drivers. But they, they, this article points out that their, you know, the source code for the core operating system was not released. Uh, and and this is pretty important because when when this first broke, there were lots of people running around with their hair on fire saying, you know, this is going to be a horrible, terrible thing because. You know, there's going to be all these new vulnerabilities and exploits and, and and whatnot because the source code is now available. And, you know, they point out in here that... First off, it probably would take somebody a good, you know, I don't know, a decade to analyze all the source code for Windows 10. But sure, That's, go on. It, exactly. And they, they point out <laughs> that, you know, Windows, Windows 2000 back in 2004, the source code for it was disclosed and there really wasn't a big swarm of, of exploits and malware and whatnot in the wake of it. Uh, but, you know, I, I have in the past had a lot of discussions with exploit writers, and the general consensus is that source code is interesting, but it takes a really long time to find vulnerabilities in it. It's much more, it's much more effective you know, to do it through fuzzing. You know, from a from a time perspective, you know that's just sure. Uh, 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 I mean, it's never a good thing for uh, no 
typically closed source to leak, especially something as targeted as Windows. Uh, I'm not going to get into the open source, closed source, source debate here, but it could potentially arm uh, bad guys with new techniques that we don't know about. That's certainly possible. Yeah. It, it could it could it could teach them more about the defenses that are built into Windows that are obfuscated today that that they would have to you know discover through trial and error. There, there's there's some downsides to this certainly. Yeah, but potentially, I I, I think yeah. it, you may, maybe you're right on evading controls that are built into Windows. It would be more informative on that. Yes. Now yeah, I agree. With that. As I recall as well, at least following the Twitter thread. So take that with a huge grain of salt. This might have disappeared very quickly once it was found. That that it was discovered on an FTP site and then quickly taken off. I'd heard that. So who knows it's, how much of this actually got into the wild? That's that's not clear, right? I, I don't okay. know. Yeah, yeah there, take all that with a grain of salt. Who knows? So there were some files apparently copied to to Mega, you know, to, to the Mega.nz or whatever that. Yeah, and that's that's in the wild forever. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, it, it it seemed bad at first. It doesn't seem quite as bad. I, I will say, you know, USB, Wi-Fi, and plug-and-play are not trivial things unto themselves, right? So, uh, I you know, if, if you're concerned about source code being disclosed, there may still be some reason to be concerned. And hey, you know, Linux never has its source code available, so you could just switch to that. That's, a good, that's also a very good point. You know, I was I was thinking it, w- it was a really interesting story that that kind of follows the thread here. OpenVPN. I don't know if you read the if if you read the I stories. Did. You yep. know, Open OpenVPN went through recently two separate code audits, one related to its crypto and the other related to the code. And you know, there were a couple of. Um, I think like low and medium level vulnerabilities found. And, and at the time, you know, people ran around saying, oh, this it's great, you know. And then like, I don't know, was it a week later? Somebody with a fuzzer <laughs> found a, a, you know, a high severity vulnerability that wasn't found in the code audit. And well, it's a, it's a different technique. It is and, a different technique, right. And it shows how difficult it is to hand audit code of that complexity. Exactly. And Windows, yeah, I think, is orders of magnitude far more complex so yeah i mean that is part of the problem with securing windows that it's this huge tangle of massive code base some new some old huge amount of backwards compatibility has got to be maintained it's it's non-trivial yeah. and so when people say why can't we just get a secure version of linux well this is our, our, our sorry of windows this is part of the problem is is it's not a closed life cycle it's not a, a closed ecosystem right and because of customer demand they've got to maintain epic amount of backwards compatibility and flexibility for all sorts of drivers and hardware and software to all plug in at very deep levels in the code so i'm not making excuses from for, for microsoft but it's it's really complex when you think about all these different interactions and how they've got to work together and also release at a regular reasonable price on a regular basis and all this sort of stuff. It's almost a Herculean task to make it unbreachable. And and if we look at it in many ways, where we've seen most of the exploits shift to, although that's somewhat changed this year, but it shifted to the applications running on top of the code, not necessarily the, the, the OS itself. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly a, 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 a quite a, a, 
nonstop train of vulnerabilities to, you know found and patched every month but yeah. if in terms of what's being exploited it's like you said it's heavily slanted towards application layer and not surprising so uh, moving on to our last story, which comes from Ars Technica also, and the title is Honda Shuts Down Factory After Finding NSA-Derived WannaCry in Its Networks. Woohoo. Uh, so, th- so yeah, uh, Honda in its uh, Sayama plant in, uh, in northwest of Tokyo shut down production. It's not really clear to me exactly uh, how long... Um, it says briefly. Yeah, it says briefly, briefly right? So, uh, a- anyway, the the reason I wanted to to you know to bring this up is obviously the systems weren't patched, right? <laughs> you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. and and this is over a month after the initial WannaCry infection. Yep, uh, happened. So I mean, it's what almost three months after the initial um, the initial patch was released. Two patch. months after. The the disclosure by shadow brokers and a month after the, the the worm was released, and to me this is a story about accepting risk, and 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 also apparently isolating networks. So one of the one of the observations they they, they make here is that you know the the kill switch domain. Now you have to put a little bit of a grain of salt on this, right? Because there we know there were some variants that that tried to remove the kill switch and change the kill switch domain which if if that domain was resolvable the malware didn't run right so right but there was also a lot of people i think very confused there were there were between this is a kill switch domain or command and control domain should i block it or not block it Correct. and i saw that even from threat intel vendors when this was going on originally the, yes that there was a, a lot of confusion about that because everyone's used to blocking command and control domains not making sure this is unblocked so when the threat intel comes out about this domain i think there was an assumption of let's well, block it right yep but but again 37 days later we you know everybody should know what's going on now agreed the, what I what I suspect, and there's really this is all hypothesis, but I have seen similar kinds of discussions <laughs> in the past, um, and and I think this particular environment, or, or potentially this this particular environment and the and the circumstances around it, kind of lend itself to this being the case. You know that a really highly important network is isolated or thought to be isolated from everything else and therefore the you know it's it's much less important to patch right because let's say i'm a i'm a car company and i have factories and you know i lose millions of dollars for every hour that it is down and it runs you know 24 hours a day seven days a week and we have i don't know let's say twice a year change i you know making all this stuff up, right? But we have twice a year change windows and that's the only time we're going to get downtime. Yeah. When, we're, when we're retooling the actual equipment on the factory floor. Right. That's the yeah. only time you're going to take it down. and But that's okay because it's, you know, quote, air-gapped. And I, I you know... The, and the cost otherwise is so high that it's right. worth the risk. Correct. Correct. Now, I think that, and I mentioned this on, in a number of different venues, but I, I really feel like we have an entire generation of IT and security people 
who have grown up in their careers without having experienced the worm. Right. Because it's been a while. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. I Since mean, the last had... bad one before WannaCry was uh, um, Conficker. Right. And that was in 2008. So, you know, it's been nine years. Which is, that's like 173 in dog years or something. Pretty, so Pretty much. Right. Right. I mean, we, yeah, you, 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 have, you have people designing systems who, you know, who were in middle school when, when that happened. So they, they clearly don't remember it. Um, anyway, point is, I'm not, I'm not convinced that uh, when organizations are making those kinds of value judgments, if, if they really are completely understanding, you know, what they're, the risks that they're evaluating. And, you know, and it's particularly troublesome in this case. I mean, obviously, we don't really know what kinds of discussions led up to it or, you know, hey, maybe they just forgot this plant, like they patched every other plant and they forgot this one or really don't know. Or maybe it was just one system and they shut it down as a precautionary measure. We, we really don't know any, any of the details, but I have seen this be a, a, a big problem in the past where... In, you know, a, a, a team or a company believes because they have some kind of prophylactic measure in place that they, they can accept risks that don't actually make sense in the context of, you know, a particular type of threat. But because they're so used to hitting that button, like they designed this thing to be resistant to, you know, the normal phishing and uh, you know, email-based threats because we don't check our email and we don't have web browsers or, you know, that right. sort of thing. But, right. you know, the, you, the, yeah. the typical vectors, they sidestep, but they didn't. Right. You introduce a system that's infected mm -hmm. on the network and bam, everything is now, you know, in, the, in the case of a worm, everything is now hosed. So again, we don't know that's what happened here, but kind of connecting all the dots, it seems to make sense. If the you know if the if there was a, a terrible outbreak, it would mean that those systems probably couldn't resolve the external domain, which probably means that they're kind of fenced off, which you would expect to see in a case where a company decided to take you know and accept the risk of not patching systems. So um, I, all I'm saying, and again, I we don't know. That's what this is what went on with Honda. They're not, they're probably never going to tell us. Right, uh, but you know, the point is, I I I think when you know, my advice is, when we are going to evaluate and accept risks, we damn well better understand the risks that we're we're accepting. Yeah, that, that's very fair and reasonable to me. And and I don't think we do. I, I mean, quite often, I'm not. I don't. Heck, I. I'm a garbage man. What do I know, right? <laughs> so, anyhow, that's my that's my deal. That that's your take. That's you're, my take. You're staying with it. Yep. All right. And that is the that's the show. We 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 fought through through hardships on this episode with our with our Skype connections, and and my kids <laughs> with their damn whatever they're doing on the internet and dogs and cats and <laughs> everything else. But we, we did it. 
because we, we love you, the listener. Right? Yeah. In a, in a purely Plutonic way. Except for that one person that, so, you know. Yeah. 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 So what, uh, any, any shout outs? Uh, we're going to be at DerbyCon. It, yes, absolutely. Unless, unless you're traveling, we're going to be, uh, I'll be at, at DerbyCon. O'Reilly Security Conference in New York. Yep. And we already talked about being at uh, Tactical Edge in Columbia. Yep, yep. And then uh, you want to give another shout out to the TierraCon uh, Yeah, when, yeah. When is that? It's coming up like now, isn't is it? Isn't it, it? I thought it was in... Uh, when is it? Is it's it? July. Oh, no, yeah. It's yeah, no, yeah, it's sorry. during summer camp. Next month. Next month, July 27th, 28th, TierraCon, uh, taking place at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas. Yeah. And they are all about supporting women in the security industry. There you go. And we have some listeners who uh, learned about it from us and had a great experience. So we're trying to repeat that goodwill. That's right. And hey, if you've got a con you want us to shout out, send us a note. We'll shout it out. Can't, we, we cannot assure you that it will work in your favor, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. This is a double-edged sword. Uh, one last shout out for me. Thank you so very much to our Patreon donors. You guys are awesome. Yep. And uh, if if you're interested in supporting the show, feel free to donate. It's still open for additional donations if you would like to. It, you know, one of the reasons we don't have sponsors on the show is because of amazing uh, generosity from our Patreon donors and allows us to not have to worry about ever having uh, a sponsor editorialize anything we have to say. That's right. That's or right. Edit anything we have to say, I should say. Right. Anyway, uh, you can find links to the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kell on Twitter at Lerg. That's L-E-R-G. And you can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week, which, by the way, will be five weeks. Well, let's not count that kitchen. That chicken before it hatches. Damn it, we're going to do it. <laughs> See ya. See you, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Windows. For Pete's sake. No, go away. Podcast professional. Yep. Right here. <laughs> Be a big edit just like last time. <laughs>